Welcome to Grace Capital Church Podcast, broadcasting from our Pembroke campus. And finally, before we get rolling here, um, you know, I actually, as Mark and Jorgen and Richie just shared some of your story with me over the summer as we got to know each other, I started to have a little burden on my heart. And uh, I, um, I didn't, even before I had an opportunity or an invitation to speak here, I just thought, Lord, you, you, have, you have a love for these people. And I just wanted to share that love with you in this sense. The sense that I had for you was um, that God sees you. He is the God who sees. And I, I'm drawing this from, you know, if you know the context I'm speaking of, I think it's Abraham's uh, concubine gets sent away with Ishmael, and they're kind of out in the desert, and um, the, she's so worried because her son's going to die. And that's where we get the revelation of, I'm the God who sees. Like, I see you, and I see your pain. And some of you who've been here in the five and ten year range, you have been through some ups and downs, according to what Pastor Mark has shared. And the thing that I wanted to share with you is God sees. He knows. The Psalms say that he keeps our tears in a bottle. And so for some of you who've ridden some waves, some ups ups and downs here at Grace Capital, I just want you to know the Lord sees. He loves you. He's for you. Amen? All right, well, let's pray, and then let's get into it, because Mark um, didn't invite me here to prophesy, although I'd love to, but I, just, I got a word that we should get to, so. <laughs> Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. And Jesus, you say that um, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And so, Lord, I do pray that as we press into your word today, that you would, uh, everything that's from you, just let it stick. Everything that's not from you, just let it fall by the wayside, and uh, we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a wonderful pro-life activist named Penny Lee. Penny Lee lives in Boone, North Carolina. And besides being a pro-life activist, she also just does ministry. So she'll, you know, do things like this and preach. She tells of a time when she had done a service and uh, was ministering to people at the end of the service. And an old gentleman by the back door caught her eye. And she kind of said, you know, hold on, give me a second. I'll come and, you know, I want to hang out with you. And so an hour later, this ministry time went right along, but this gentleman stayed. And so at the end of this time, she went and presented herself to this gentleman. Turns out this man was a German man. He had grown up in Germany, Nazi Germany. And he told a story to her that has actually now become a video. If you find this video, you can Google it and find it. But the, the story is this. He was racked with guilt and pain after this worship service because he remembered as a child being in his German church. And in the spring of 1942, at, a, at the same hour, every time on Sunday morning, a train would go past their church, and the whistle would blow, and it would be annoying to them. And they were horrified when on one of these Sunday mornings, they heard screams of humans as the train went by. And it registered to them that what was going on as this train went by the same hour On Sunday morning, it was filled with Jews who were being transported to Auschwitz. And the man was racked with grief and pain. He remembered this as a, as a, this is a memory from him as a boy. And he remembered that the response of the church was actually to modify the worship time so that the worship would get louder as the train went by so they could drown out the cries of the Jews headed to Auschwitz. Weeping, Penny Lee is able to minister the grace and the goodness of God to him. But man weeping with guilt because 
the cry of the pastor was, congregation, let's sing a little louder. Sing a little louder. Of course, it's very easy for us to, with hindsight, have indignation. But my question for us is, where do we do the same thing as the German church? Where are we doing that in the same way today? Where is it easier for us, instead of engaging with the culture, which is very scary, it's eviscerating, it's polarized, we're in this false binary, right? Every issue that's presented to us by the media, it's it's either this way or that way. Instead of having room for intelligent conversation about issues, when it's that scary, I mean, just think of these Kavanaugh hearings we just saw wrapped up over the last two weeks. When I see the Kavanaugh hearings, I think, I do not want to engage with this culture. I'd rather do the worship here. I'd rather stay here. Thank you, Cam. Cam, you lead a great team. I want to stay here in God's presence with you and your team. Yes, you can do that. It's Pastor Appreciation Month. We can do this. But what does God's Word say? What does God's Word say about us and the church engaging with the culture. Is it possible that there is a both and where we can totally enjoy God's presence? I, what Mark didn't mention, I don't think, is I'm a church planter. I, I led a church in, in Beverly Mass for nine years. I, I love God's people. I love God's presence. But what if there's a both and where we totally access God's presence like we did this morning? And we also courageously engage with the culture. What does the scripture have to say about that? Let's look now at a passage that's probably familiar to you. It's from Matthew 5. And this comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. So just a little background here. Let's remember that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. There's probably a large crowd that's gathered on this hillside. But Jesus has called his disciples and is saying, Hey, I want to tell you a few truths about the kingdom. But remember that these people that he's speaking to are an occupied people. I'm speaking geopolitically, right? These are people, the Jewish people are occupied by the Romans. And some of the possibilities, even among the disciples previous to encountering Jesus, were either the hermit lifestyle, let's just withdraw completely, let's just do our God thing over here. But others of them also were the whole rebel option, the whole let's throw off Roman control. Let's, let's revolt. That was also an option. And church history tells us that some of the disciples may have dabbled in either of those before their encounter with God. Just remember that as we read this. Let's look at Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth. And I love that Victoria was talking about identity this morning. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to, the, to your Father who is in heaven. Let's start with salt. The Old Testament indicates that salt had such a principal and essential role in the lives of the Jews. It is, was used as a seasoning, as a preservative, as a disinfectant, and part of an, it's part of the offering. It was also used as a currency. 
Leviticus, Ezekiel, other passages tell us that salt was a regular part of the religious ceremony that God instituted with his people. Places in Numbers and Second Chronicles indicate that salt was actually used for covenant too. So if you're going to make a covenant with someone and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a blood brother with you, it would be more like I'm a salt brother with you because they'd be an exchange of salt. And we know that there are about seven miles of this cliff on the Dead Sea where salt was harvested from. They would take the salt from these cliffs, then they would, um, with water, is all is still in the seawater, they'd put it in a pit, and they'd let that seawater evaporate, and then that would be how they would get their salt. And salt was so essential. And I think in this passage where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, it's so essential, he's talking about your and our intimacy with Jesus, the fact that we walk with Jesus, that we're with him day in and day out. Saltiness has everything to do with our holiness, our intimacy, our obedience, our walk with the Lord, our worship of him. It's fundamental to our identity. It's who we are as we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and as we love our neighbor as ourselves. Paul said it this way in Acts 17. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. Right? If we lose that, if we lose our connection to Jesus, if we lose our intimacy, if we stop meeting together, like Hebrews says, on Sundays just to connect with the Lord and stay in his presence, then we lose our saltiness. And what I'm suggesting today is that saltiness has everything to do with our intimacy. Everyone say intimacy. Intimacy, intimacy okay? We are intimate with the Lord. Now let's hold, hold on to that for a little bit. Let's go to light. Let's keep going. You are the light of the world. Let's pick up it. Uh, 14 to 16. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works in heaven and give glory to your Father. Excuse me. See your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, light is pretty amazing. Science tells us that it behaves both as a particle and as a wave, right? Light, when, when you shine light on a metal object, on a metal object, then photons start emitting out of that metal object, meaning it's acting, light's acting like a particle. But also, we found out that, that light, visible light, is actually just one little part of this huge spectrum of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum. And light behaves as a wave. We, we know that because we see, you know, the rainbow refracted if you put it through a you know, a certain piece of glass. And so I just say that to say, you know, science kind of um, is, is reflecting a reality in the spirit, which is light is not, light doesn't, light does not not have an effect. <laughs> you know, light always has an effect. Light by just being itself is having an effect. And I would say that Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about. Light, you, by you having the light of Christ in you, again, as both our communion friends and Victoria mentioned, just who you are, light's coming out and it's affecting but how silly it would be to cover that, you know? For light to do what it does, we can't cover it. It's got to be out and about. Light's always doing something. It's always chasing out the dark, darkness. So I want to hold on to this light passage for a second. I want to start to apply it specifically to our culture and specifically to the governmental part of our, sculpture, excuse me, our culture. Let's start first with 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul is just actually listing to, to Timothy, his protege. He's saying, hey, here's some qualifications for elders because the household of God is really important. Like church isn't just a nice social club. It's actually God's plan A. And so when we talk about elders, it's, it's really important. And listen to what he says. He has this passing comment that I feel like this amazing mic drop from Paul into our lives 2,000 years later. He says, the household of God 
It is. It's the church of the living God, which is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Okay, so just you and me, by doing what we do on Sundays, we just are the pillar and the buttress of the truth. I love that this ESV version has the word buttress. In a former life, I have a few former lives, but in a former life, I was actually a French teacher. And I had the privilege of bringing students to Paris for a month. And then they would be in homestays, and um, then uh, we would receive them in April in Massachusetts. Now, I had the amazing thing that they were all in homestays, but I stayed in this school right in downtown Paris, and I had this little uh, oval window on the fourth floor of this school. It's really bizarre that teachers stay in schools, but they do at times. So I had this window, and I could see... Notre Dame Cathedral from my window every time I woke up. And if you can picture that cathedral, just a beautiful cathedral, and it has surrounded by flying buttresses. That's how the cathedral stays up, because these flying buttresses keep it up. And here's Paul saying that you and I, we are the buttress of the truth. In other words, how we live our lives reveals to the world truth, not just as an abstract concept, but truth in our day-to-day. Do you know what one of the fastest growing movements is in our country right now? As far as in the religious world? It's actually the Mormon church right now. It's one of the fastest growing ones. Do you know why I think that is? And I'm borrowing from a writer. This is not my original idea. But you know why I think that is? Because as our church, excuse me, as our world is going topsy-turvy, and as a lot of the church is abandoning truth, the Mormon church, when it comes to family... They're rock solid. You know, when it comes to marriage and family, they're actually rock solid. Of course, we have a few theological bones to pick with them, probably. But the fact is, they are rock solid on marriage and family. Case in point, I have a friend after college, goes to New York City, lives his LGBTQ life, you know, just loving life and doing what he wants to do, becomes a very successful businessman, does that for about two decades. And there's a renaissance going on with him right now. So he marries a woman, just a couple of years ago, marries a woman, already on baby number two, and he is right active with the Mormon church. His wife is a Mormon. Now, I'm believing for all sorts of great things for him, but the fact is, he was so drawn, you know, out of the brokenness, was just so drawn to the solidness of marriage and family. I'm not here to tell you to join a Mormon church, just to be clear. I'm just saying, there's something going on there. All right, so we do buttress the truth because of who we are. We display to the world what truth should be, not just as an abstract concept, but in our day-to-day living. Now, let me take this whole light concept one step further, specifically with government, because both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, they all mention, they both mention what our relationship with the government should be. I'm going to look at Peter's verses today. First Peter 2. <laughs> 1 Peter 2, it's 13 to 17, verse 14 says this. It says, the governors, leaders, they are sent by God. Okay, that's important. Actually, I want to pause right there for a second. They are sent by God, sent by Him. Okay, that Him is referencing God. So I know sometimes we can get frustrated with our leadership, but look at what he's saying. He's saying governors are actually sent by God. And remember that Peter's writing to several churches, but including the Roman church that is completely being persecuted. just want to make that note. Governors are sent by God to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Okay? They punish those who do evil, and they praise those who do good. As, other, as another um, 
translation says, it says, they are to reward good and punish evil. And now here's my question for you, and where I'm driving out with this whole light thing. How in the world can our leaders of government know the difference between good and evil if the church is not reflecting that light of what good and evil is? They are ministers from God sent to govern. We are to honor them and respect them. Both Paul and Peter mentioned that. Paul in Romans 13, Peter right here in 1 Peter 2. But how are they to know the difference between good and evil if the church, if we're covering our light? And of course, there's a whole conversation about how we do that winsomely. Of course. That's a whole other set of messages. But right now, we're just getting at the fact that this is what we are to do. Martin Luther King said it this way. He said, the church must be reminded that it is not the master or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. It must be the guide and the critic of the state and never its tool. If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. That's from a group of uh, sermons collected in a book called Strength to Love. We must recapture our prophetic zeal. Isaiah prophesied in his time, right, that you guys call evil good and good evil. Are we not in the same time? Do not our governing officials need to hear from the church on what good and evil are? Of course they do. And so what I'm suggesting today is we got saltiness, which is your intimacy with Jesus, but then light is our engagement with the culture. Everyone say engagement. And I think Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about when he put these right together. Because your saltiness, you're in my intimacy with Jesus, us spending time with him, praying, reading the word, coupled with our engagement, being the light that God has called us to be in the culture. You know what that brings about? That brings about worship. In other words, what I'm suggesting today is that our intimacy and our engagement together, they're going to result in the worship of the nations, meaning nations worshiping God. We've been called to disciple nations. This isn't the only way we disciple nations, but one of the ways we disciple nations is we be salty, spend time with Jesus, get his presence, but then we also winsomely but strongly engage the culture, speak truth into culture in winsome ways because that results in people giving glory to God. Amen? Because Pastor Jorgen and Pastor Mark are going to spend the rest of this time in this series illustrating that through some awesome Old Testament heroes. Let me try one that I don't think they're preaching on, which is Jonah. Are we good? Okay, I'm not going to step on his toes. Jonah. Saltiness. Intimacy. Where does he find it? In the whale of a belly. You know, Jonah doesn't surrender until he's inside a whale of a belly. He has this come to Jesus moment, and then they're good, right? He and the Lord are all good then. Engage. God calls him to do something crazy. God calls him to go to the Ninevites who, my goodness, we think ISIS is bad. These Ninevites to their enemies were awful. They did really bad, really bad things to their enemies. But God calls Jonah to engage, and guess what happens? I mean, Jonah was surprised himself. They turn to God. They fast. They turn to God. They have a repentance moment. And I just think that there are so many repentance moments that are available to us as a culture if the people of God will stand up winsomely, yes, lovingly, yes, caringly, but boldly speaking truth into our culture. Amen? Daniel 11.32 says this, those who know their God, intimacy, saltiness, will stand firm and take action. 
they'll engage, they'll be light. And of course, Daniel, he went through three kings, and in every one of the king's administrations that he was serving, they all experienced a move of God that changed the culture at that time. God's looking for some Daniels, and I know they're right here in this room. Fast forward. William Wilberforce, some of you heard his name before, 1759 to 1834. Let's go through his salty light Let's go through his intimacy, engagement story. He's a wealthy young man. He is born into privilege. He is, you know, on the route to serving in government service. He becomes a young member of parliament, MP, uh, in, in England. You, this is the UK. And, you know, they, are, they kind of do the respectable thing. They're respectable Anglican, you know. They're, they're doing the church thing. But they have this crazy aunt or uncle who's a Methodist, you know. <laughs> Not a Methodist. Those are the holy rollers, right? Those are the guys who are experiencing Jesus. And so whatever. So, he, you know, well, well, the reason I'm sharing that is because it seems like in his childhood he probably had a few Sunday school times with crazy aunt or uncle. So there are some seeds sown there. As a young member of parliament, he's life of the party. He's the guy who, you know, at the pub, he's getting up on tables and getting everyone singing together. And just fun guy to be around is what history tells us, his biographers tell us. Well, he does what wealthy people from England do around 24 and 25, and he takes a tour of Europe. They go on a little trip, Germany, France, all this. And with his little family group that's traveling is um, a tutor, so a teacher of one of his brothers. And this teacher also has a real relationship with Jesus. Like, he might be one of those crazy Methodists. And I'm saying that because I grew up Methodist, so I can say that. But he, and so it's unclear exactly what happened, but Wilberforce is, has this um, coming to Jesus moment while he's on tour, while he's doing his little travels in Europe. And it, you know, shows up in his journals. He has been affected by God. He comes back to England and wrestles with God. God, should I be a pastor? Because that's what people do. Or should I stay in my government role and with the position that I've been given and, and advocate for your kingdom coming that way? And of course, as many of us know, he chose that latter. And he made it his goal to fight for the abolition of slavery, among other things. Right? In fact, in his language, in his parlance, he was really pro, he wanted civility back in culture because he's looking at an 18th, 19th century England rife with prostitution, rife with drunkenness, just rife with, I mean, the human condition was so miserable, slavery being the apex of it. And he says, we've got to bring the kingdom of God to bear on this. And he spends his whole life fighting this fight. Do you know that three days before his death is when he finally got word from the British government that they were going to move forward on this repeal, abolition of slavery. He died in 1833. In 1834, the next year, is when the um, Slavery Abolition Act was passed by the UK Parliament. He encountered Jesus, kept his salt. He engaged with the culture because God gave him a special avenue to do that. And the result, worship of God. Do you think human dignity was restored when slavery was finally abolished? Then it would spread to this country as well. Amen? Not every one of you is called to be a Wilberforce. I understand that. But we are all called to intimacy and engagement. We are all called to keep our saltiness, keep flowing with Jesus, and we are all called to engage the culture in different ways. I want to suggest a few ways for you today. 
And this is where I'm really believing. I kind of think of Genesis 1. You know, Genesis 1 says the Holy Spirit was kind of hovering over the void before God started to speak. You know, let there be light, let there be this. So I'm kind of believing. I'm going to mention a few things, and my faith uh, meter is such that I believe that as I speak a few of these things, some of you are just going to get lit up with like, yes, this is what I need to do. I need to respond in this way, okay? So actually, I'm actually going to pause and ask for that to happen. Holy Spirit, I just pray. Um, that even as we speak some possibilities, not just right now, but into the series that Pastor Jorgen and Pastor Mark will take this church, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you'd begin to speak to people of how they are to engage with our culture in a winsome, loving, beautiful way. In Jesus' name, amen. And where I'm coming from is some of you know, you know of the book called um, Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. He kind of advocates for the fact that, hey, it just takes a few people to start to spin up, then momentum grows. And I so believe that for the state of New Hampshire, that a little engagement from the church, just a little bit, will tip scales so quickly here. I mean, New Hampshire is so influenceable because of actually the political structure we have with, without going to civics lesson. I mean, you have 400 reps, 24 senators. They're all very local. They're all reachable by telephone. When you call one of your reps, they do answer the phone, or their spouse answers the phone, or their kid answers the phone, because they don't have staff, so you can talk to them. And they're not scary. They're just people, just like you. All right, here's what I want you to do. Number one, I want you to vote. November 6th, please vote. In your districts, you know, some of these votes are just the difference of like 10, you know, 10 votes will swing something. Vote for people that you believe in. Please vote. I want you to consider how you can influence certain outcomes. As I just mentioned, you can contact your, legisla- your legislators. And this is where Cornerstone is helpful to you. We will keep you appraised of issues that are going on. You know, we have our wheelhouse issues. We're not everything to everybody. We have a few wheelhouse issues. And you, um, I want to tell you about what they are. And then I'll advise you how to contact your legislator. And you can do that. You can call them, as I just indicated. They will answer the phone. Some of you need to write op-eds because, uh, just so you know, legislators and governors, they are watching things going on. Now, I know we don't always need to engage in every conversation on Facebook because that gets yucky, but you can inject, you know, if you're led by the Holy Spirit, you can inject your pieces of conversation either in op-eds or in um, social media, you know, led by the Lord. Another thing you can do is you can testify in these committee hearings. Cornerstone will keep you apprised of issues that are going on. And just so you know, in this state, they have to listen to you. If you show up at a committee hearing when they are wrestling through a certain issue, they're going to stay until 7, 8, 9 at night until they hear you get your three-minute piece. And it's not too scary, and I'll help you. I can coach you. I was pretty nervous. Actually, that's how Mark and I met. We met because I called him back in March or April and said, Mark, can you please testify in this one issue? And um, he showed up, and we both kind of had a good little testimony time. And I gave Mark the boldness award. I was a little nervous, but Mark was bold as a lion. I was being my little lammy self, and uh, (laughs) it was awesome. But hey, we're all growing. You know what I'm saying? Just, you show up, you grow. And um, again, all these, these, these guys who are sitting on these committees, they're just, it's just a citizen legislature. They are only getting $100 a year, and um, they need to be educated by you. Amen? All right. I want to land this plane. Oh, the other thing you should do is you should run for office. Okay? Whether it's your school board, governor, you can do it. Okay? If God calls, he'll supply, right? So, yeah, amen. Okay. (laughs) I'll just let that one go. But Cornerstone can help you there. We can alert you. We can direct you. We can educate you. We can encourage action. Because here's what I believe. If we're salty and we're lighty, 
Heaven's going to come down, and I believe that we can bring heaven to earth. I believe that the kingdom can come, and we can win people and policies. Because that's what God does. He doesn't want to just... See, because when, you, when, when we're off balance on either of those, we don't get the full result. If we're just salty, then we get... Sing a little louder. We get... People are dying, and we're not doing anything about it, right? We're just kind of here having an awesome worship service, which I like. But if we're all engagement, we know those people sound like too. If they haven't spent time with Jesus, they're not humble and loving, and they come out just like clanging cymbals, and you want to plug your ears, and I want to run too. And I, honestly, they show up at our testimony, or they show up at these hearings too, and I just go, oh gosh, like, you got truth, brother, but you got no love, and it's like not coming out too well, all right? So we need both. We can win the people and the policy. There's a great example. Of this. Let me just close with this. I just saw this happen in California, and I want to say it can happen here in New Hampshire as well. Yeah, and we'll pray. This is good. Cam asked when he should come back up, and I was like, when I pray. And now this is me getting the boots. This is good. Good job. Um, Let me just end with this quick story. So California, Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire, we all had a bill that we were dealing with this last spring. It's called the therapy ban. And the therapy ban... It's really nefarious because the idea is if your son or daughter comes to you and says, hey, dad, mom, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction or I'm struggling with my gender identity. Right now in the state of New Hampshire, if you send them to a counselor in the state of New Hampshire, that counselor cannot, biblical, uh, cannot counsel them according to biblical, our biblical understanding of the world right now because that law went through. Well, that law was also going through for California. But can I tell you that the church in California rallied and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. But they also didn't just pray. They engaged. And so a whole lot of guys who had come through same-sex attraction and gender identity stuff, but who knew the Lord, they started to speak out in the culture. Now, talk about a minority that people don't want to hear from, right? Our culture doesn't want to hear from people who engage with Jesus and have some transformation. <clears throat> Anyways, but they just start to communicate. This is how God met me in my sexual struggle. This is how God met me in my gender identity struggle. And I think a miracle happened on August 31st. On the very last day of California's session, the assemblyman, himself a gay man, who had put forth the bill, he withdrew the bill. I think it's an absolute miracle. It's just a miracle. So there's a God story going on with that man. And again, it's because the church was salty, praying like crazy. They engaged. They didn't draw back. They shared their stories, right? So what does Revelation say? The spirit of prophecy. It's, it's, um, it's, uh, we, we, um, we overcome by, by, yeah, by sharing our testimony, not loving our lives unto death, right? And, um, so people just started to share their story. They engaged. They didn't withdraw. And that's what can happen. Miracles can happen. Amen. All right. Fair enough. Let me pray. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Lord, this is not the day to shrink back. And our world is dying to see a church alive, fully in love with Jesus, fully salty, engaged in his presence, but also not afraid to speak truth into the culture in loving, winsome, wonderful ways. And Lord, that's where we need your help. We need your strategy help, Lord, because we don't always know how to be winsome and loving. So we're asking for that help. And Lord, I pray today, I believe that there are Daniels, Esthers, Mordecais, Jonas right here in this church. And I pray that over this series, over this next month, you would begin to prick hearts, invite people to the adventure with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Grace Capital Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this podcast and the mission that we have in New England, or if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to support this ministry financially, please visit us online at gccnh.com 